Thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for the way that it teaches us uh, what you expected of your people uh, thousands of years ago and also what you expect of us today. Uh, We thank you. We love you and pray your spirit would lead us and guide us into all truth. Your word is truth. So we thank you for these things and pray for them, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Leviticus, the book of holiness. Have you started to catch on? You see this repeated word holiness showing up in Leviticus? Even, uh, let's see, what is it, 11, 44 and 45, it shows up twice. Holiness is the key word for the book of Leviticus. So let's quickly review. Remember, Leviticus breaks down into two big sections, 1 through 16 and then 17 through 27. 1 through 16, so this will be the third part of the first section, 1 through 16. The Lord says, be holy as I am holy. Your question in 1 through 16, the question that's being answered is, how do I approach this holy God? He's just shown up in Exodus chapter 40. He's in the tabernacle, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. There he is. You have a question. He's a holy God. I am not a holy person. How do I approach him without dying? And so he's going to answer that question in the first 16 chapters. Here's how you approach me. You approach me through acceptable sacrifices, which we looked at at 1 through 7, through a holy priesthood, 8 through 10, And then day-to-day avoiding defilement and maintaining cleanness, remaining clean, before him. And he set out his standards for what do I mean by being clean before me. So acceptable sacrifices, a holy priesthood, and avoiding defilement, maintaining cleanness. Point. The Israelites had to be careful regarding what they took in. And what they got too close to. That's the summary of 11 through 15. Did you get that for your final? The Israelites had to be careful regarding what they took in through their mouth and what they got too close to. And he tells them all the things that would defile them. So he was making sure they understood, if you're going to live with me, you're going to approach me properly, you've got to maintain a level of cleanness in the camp, because I am holy. Big idea for tonight, be holy, as I am holy, says the Lord. Applicational point, uh, they were no longer to live as they saw fit. They were now to live in a way that honored God by being holy as he is holy. So however they wanted to live before they had been redeemed from Egypt doesn't matter anymore. He says, I've redeemed you, and because I've redeemed you, you ought to honor me and live like I live, and that is be holy as I am holy. Let's talk about defilement and cleanness. For an Israelite, God's holiness required daily purity and cleansing from contamination. Defilement was to be scrupulously avoided. 
And that meant both ritual impurity and physical impurity. What he or she ate, handled, or came too close to was a means and measure of his holiness. And so there were levels of cleanness under the old covenant. And where you wanted to try to stay is in the clean. And it's in your notes. So here's the Israelites' worldview. You've just, there's God, he's in the tabernacle. This is your worldview. God is in the center. God is holy. God lives in the tabernacle. So far, so good? If you were clean, you remained inside the camp. You remember reading this in the chapters? If you were unclean, you had to live outside the camp, or at least go there temporarily. While you were unclean, you had to go outside the camp until you became clean, and then you could come back into the camp. But living in the camp was a privilege as well as a responsibility. So this was your worldview. God is holy, and he lives in the tabernacle, and that's why we can't get too close to it. My goal as an Israelite is to remain clean, live inside the camp. But these chapters start telling me things that will get me at least removed from the camp temporarily because I've become defiled. If I become defiled, I have to leave the camp. Why? Great question. Here's what defilement did. First, of course, it defiled. It contaminated myself. It contaminated the camp, and it contaminated the tabernacle. When I got defiled, it left me on the outside looking in. It distanced me. It reduced my intimacy with God. Because the closer, closer I got to... The closer I got to the tabernacle the more intimate my relationship with God. Remember we talked about the priests? The priests had the most intimate relationship with God. They got the closest to him. Well, right here is a level of day-to-day -day intimacy with the Lord. Out here in the outside the camp circle, I have lost a great deal of my intimacy with the Lord. So it defiled me, of course. It put distance between me and God. It hindered me, so it put publicly approaching him and worshiping him and serving him off limits. If I'm outside the camp, I cannot worship. I can't serve. I can't draw near to him in any way, shape, or form. These codes that God gives in Leviticus taught devout Israelites that defilement touched every area of their life. Every area of their life. God's holiness demanded cleansing and purifying from defilement before I could worship. I couldn't come to the tabernacle, remember? Back up here. I couldn't come to the tabernacle with my offering, unless I'm inside the camp. 
If I'm not clean, I can't even go inside the camp to get to the tabernacle. So if I'm clean, I can get to the tabernacle and I can bring an offering. If I'm outside the camp, I can't even go in the camp. doesn't matter if I have the sacrifice or not. I can't go in there. I can't offer any kind of worship until I'm cleansed and can re-enter the camp. So he goes through in chapters 11 through 15, he talks about some defilement from without and some defilement from within. That's what he's talking about in these chapters. Here are the things that defile you. What does defilement do? It it my, My circle keeps going farther and farther out, right? I can't be in here. Defilement keeps pushing me out and away from God. So he's saying these are the things that are going to get you outside the camp. Some of them are within your control, some of them aren't. But these are the things that are going to move you away from me. I haven't moved, you're moving. So there's defilement from without. Here are things that we can control. So he gave them principles for what was clean to eat. For land animals, if it chewed the cud and has a split hoof, it's clean to eat. And then he gives lots of examples of things that aren't clean to eat. If I'm a sea animal, I had to have both fins and scales. If I only have fins, nope. If I have no scales, nope. I have to have fins and I have to have scales. Birds and fowl, basically the blood eaters were out. If a bird uh, consumed carrion meat, whether that was live meat or decaying meat, if it's a blood eater, you couldn't eat it. Insects. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) Good to know there were some clean insects. (laughs) They were forbidden. Yes. Kind of like vegetables. It's kind of like, this is kind of like Brussels sprouts. They're forbidden except for those with jointed hind legs. And we're given a few examples of what those could be. Grasshoppers, interestingly enough, do you remember when the spies go up? They haven't gone up yet. Remember when the spies go up into the land? And they say, we appeared as grasshoppers to them. And you're like, that's weird. So what if you look, oh, We are so small, in their sight, they would eat us. Now, I wouldn't eat grasshoppers, knowingly. (laughs) But that's what they're talking about. When they go up into the promised land and they scope it out, and they say, we saw giants, and they, we look like grasshoppers to them. We look like food to them. They were so big and so powerful, we would stand no chance whatsoever. I'm thankful the Lord forbade um, eating millipedes and stuff like that. Why were these unclean? Lots and lots of ideas. So let's cut to the chase. Possibly they were for reasons of hygiene. There are certainly things that we have found out about some of these animals that would have been under those conditions in the desert. Probably a bad idea if they would have eaten them. So it's possible that it was for hygienic reasons. But while all things are possible, not all things are equally probable. 
You want me to say that again? All things are possible, but not all things are equally probable. What's more probable is that it was for reasons of obedience and teaching like these. If God's diet was limited, so should theirs be. God says, this is what I want you to eat. I don't eat anything else. This is what you should eat. He wanted them to begin to please him by enjoying his choices, not their choices. How can you start with food? He's reminding them that they're set apart from defilement for him and his work at every meal. And he's using food to continually teach them that there are clean and unclean divisions among mankind. There were three kinds of animals. There was the unclean, the clean, and the holy. A holy animal was one that became a sacrifice. A clean animal was a clean animal that they could consume, because God said this is within the parameters of your diet. And then there were the unclean animals, which you are not supposed to eat these, you're not even supposed to get close to these things. So he's teaching them that there are three kinds of animals. There's a holy kind of animal, there's a clean animal, and there's an unclean animal. And these are categories. He uses those to teach his people that there are three kinds of people. In the Israelite worldview, back here, this was their worldview. There were unclean, clean, and holy people. The holy people were the priests. The clean people were the Israelites. Guess who the unclean people are? <laughs> you and me. <laughs> the Gentiles. We were the unclean people. You say, where in the world are you getting this? Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. Do you recall Peter is on the roof and he's waiting for, right? He, he's up there lounging, sunbathing. Here comes Cornelius. But before Cornelius gets there, remember God lowers a sheet with all kinds of animals in it and said, Peter, take and eat. What does Peter say? Yum, yum. No, Peter says, oh my gosh, Lord, there's, there's unclean animals in that sheet. I have never done that before. And what does the Lord tell him? Don't say that this is unclean when the Lord has made it clean. Whoop, sheet goes back up into wherever. Peter's scratching his head. Whoop, sheet comes back down again. <laughs> Opens it back up. Peter, take and eat. Lord, I've never eaten any of these things. Don't call unclean what I have made clean. Whoop, sheet goes back up. Sheet comes back down. <laughs> All kinds of unclean animals, it, right? I'm like, Peter, you know, maybe God is trying to tell me something. <laughs> I'm on number three, right? Here's all these clean and unclean animals. Take and eat, Peter. And who shows up at his house but a Gentile? And what does he do to the Gentile? Horror of horrors, he invites him in. He gets it. The Lord has for over a thousand years taught his people there are three divisions of mankind. There's holy, that's the priests. There's clean, that's Israelites. And then there's unclean. That's everyone else. 
What has he just done because of the finished work of Jesus? He's changed the rules. <laughs> Those people used to be unclean, Peter, but now they're clean. Don't call unclean what I have made clean. I have made a way for the Gentiles to come in, to be mine. So don't keep calling them unclean, Peter. They're not unclean anymore. I've fixed all that. But this is their worldview in 1445 B.C. Three kinds of animals representing three classes of people. And he used those things to teach his people about their mission and purpose and their relationship with him. Okay, so there was defilement from without. What they ate and touched made a difference. There were clean and unclean animals. If you ate an unclean animal, whether it was on purpose or whether it was accidental, what happened to you? You were defiled and you went outside the camp. There are clean and unclean people. What happens if you associated with unclean people? You're defiled. You have to head outside the camp. And if you touched a carcass, death, that always defiled you. Always. No questions asked. You touch a carcass, done. You're outside the camp. Now, that was temporary, but you had to move from inside the camp, which is clean, to unclean. Do you think people outside the camp knew they were unclean outside the camp? It would have been pretty clear, right? Why am I outside the camp? I got defiled. I'm unclean. I have to wait till I'm cleansed and then I can go back into the camp. So what they ate and touched made a difference. Every meal became an opportunity to be reminded that they're chosen, separate, and set apart for God, his worship, and his work. The food we eat is God's choice. We're going to honor him and obey him and only eat what he tells us we can eat. And in that way, we're reminded at every meal there are clean animals that we can eat and there are unclean animals that we don't eat or associate with. There are clean people and there are unclean people. Every meal is an opportunity to be reminded of what I am to be about as a devout Israelite. So there was defilement from without. There's also defilement from within. Chapter 12. So following birth, there were uh, discharges. And for boys, the uncleanness lasted 40 days. For girls, 80. You want to know why it's 40 and 80? I don't know. Write a paper. I'd love to read it. I think it's because girls are twice as good. You got twice as much time off. That's how I look at it. The boys, the moms of the boys got cheated. They didn't get 80 days off. They only got 40 days off. That was funny. <laughs> the fall means defilement rather than blessing has been mankind's legacy to one another. The fall so corrupted mankind that even our ability to do God's will, remember he told us to fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply, even our ability to do his will, reproduce with purity, has been 
messed up. We can't even do what he told us to do with purity. So there's defilement from without. There's defilement from within. More defilement from within. There's disease and decay. There's disease and decay within my body or within my dwelling. There were skin diseases. Um, It seems to be broader than just Hansen's disease, which is what you and I would call leprosy. Uh, And the disease and decay could have also been within their clothing or their house, their dwelling, uh, from mold and things like that. Disease and decay are toxic and make them unfit to dwell in God's presence. These things in your house, your clothing, leather that you might have used for something or other else, if they get mold or you get diseased, you are toxic. You're toxic to yourself, you're toxic to the camp, and you're toxic to God. And so he says, out of my sight. You have to move outside the camp. Amazing. Almost seems like there's a foreshadowing here of something. Is it to you? Might call it sin. That's what you should be calling it. (laughs) Because that's what these pictures and shadows are telling us. What happens, remember when they got a skin disease? What What was the priest supposed to be looking for? Did it go beneath the surface? Sin resides beneath the surface. What else were they to look for if it spread? What does sin do? It's like leaven. It spreads. What happens if you're really diseased, whether that's mold in your house or some kind of a skin disease? You're unclean. All of these are these pictures of sin ahead of time. And you say, well, how, how do you know that? Chapter 14, what a great picture this is. So much symbolism wrapped up in this chapter. Chapter 14, what happens in chapter 14? Remember? He's talking about those in chapter 14. Um, those, Those who have been healed must be brought to the priest who will examine them at a place outside the camp. So you're outside the camp. You've been, you've had a skin disease. You believe it's gone. You need the priest. So the priest has to come and examine you and see if it's in fact been healed. So even, chapter 14 is all about this. So even in the midst of uncleanness, what is God's heart? Chapter 14, I love John 3. Leviticus 14 is the beginning of John 3. (laughs) What happens in Leviticus chapter 14? Even in the midst of uncleanness, God's heart is for cleansing and reconsecrating such ones as are outside the camp for his worship and work. Walk through this. Walk through this chapter. you got to do it again this week. Walk through this chapter again. The priest, verses 2 and 3, the priest seeks out the leper. Where did the priest have to go? Outside the camp. 
What? That's where the sinners are. That's where those who have been defiled, they're toxic. Who goes out there? The priest. Is he just hanging around? Hey, I wonder what there is to see out here. No, he's on a search and rescue mission. What's he trying to do? Redeem and restore and reconcile. Come back in the camp. If you're clean, come back in the camp. How would they get clean from a skin disease? God would clean them. God would make the disease go away. Well, that's, whoa, <laughs> that's crazy. The priest offers the, ne- the necessary sacrifice. Verses 4 to 7. The leper washes himself and waits for day 8. The leper offers sacrifices. Then the priest anoints him on the lobe of the right ear, on his right thumb, and his right big toe. The same exact markings he used to set aside the priests. God treats lepers like priests. Unbelievable. The status to which he redeems them and puts them back in place. Oh my gosh, there's so much going on in this chapter. Woo. God treats four, what, ah, Leviticus 14, go read it, it's so exciting. You, uh, whew. yeah, okay, I gotta stop. What, is it, what does he use to pay the price for them to come back in the camp? The sacrifice, the sacrificial blood, right? Puts the blood on the earlobe, he puts the blood on the thumb, and then he puts the blood on the right big toe, right? That's what it says. Then what does he put on there? Why doesn't he put the oil on first? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So the blood is applied first to remove the sins, and now the oil, the symbol of the Holy Spirit, can be applied on top of the blood. See, where the blood is, there the Spirit is. See all these pictures back in Leviticus 14? Ah, oh my gosh, this is such good stuff. Bottom line, God treats former lepers like fellow priests. They are a nation of priests. And so he restores them to himself in an honorary way as a priest. So there's defilement from without. What I ate, what I touched. In the midst of this, we get wonderful oasis of chapter 14. If chapter 14 wasn't in here, oh my gosh, this would be a slog through these chapters. Ugh. There's all this ugh, stuff. But right here in the middle is this wonderful picture of God who's seeking to cleanse and reconsecrate a leper to his worship and to his work. Fellow leper. Let this one sink in. This is what our God has done for each one of us. We were outside the camp, lost in sin. Somewhere you became conscious of that. And guess who you found right at that time? Jesus. <laughs> I've told you the story before. I love this story. Charles Spurgeon, my favorite 
the Prince of Preachers. He's in uh, London from about 1850 to about 1865, kind of right there around the Civil War time. At that time, he has the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which Laurie and I have had the, we went behind, all that's left is the facade after the bombings that went on in Britain. All that's left is the facade. We've gone behind that facade. He had 6,000 people coming to hear him on Sundays. Now, in that day, that is unbelievable. 6,000 people. So he, he never went to seminary. He taught himself. He taught himself Greek. He taught himself Hebrew. He's probably a little smart in all of these things. And he decided what he needed to do was start a seminary. So he also had an orphanage. So he would write all kinds of things during the week that he would sell and use the money to raise money for the orphanage, which he started, because he knew, gosh, you got to take care of widows and orphans. And so he started a seminary. So he has an application for his seminary. And he, sends, he gets a, an application back, and this is how it's written. I, this is not me saying this. This is me quoting, because it's not politically correct the way this is going to come out. Okay? He, he receives an application from a man in the Orient. And the question is, how did you come to find Christ? And the applicant wrote, I know find Christ, he find me. <laughs> That's this. I didn't, people say, how did you find Christ? I didn't. I didn't find Christ. He found me. How did he find you? In the pages of the Bible. <laughs> he kind of popped out of there. Amazing. There's Leviticus 14. I'm outside the camp. He comes outside the camp to find me. That's probably where he found you too. What a great picture. I love Leviticus 14. Hopefully you'll never look at it the same because this is such a, it's in shadows. But in the New Testament, when we look back, we can see, oh my gosh, look at this. Here is our Lord Jesus about his work. Even then in these little pictures. Okay. Defilement from within. Point of Leviticus 15. Because it gets a little graphic. There was no part of life from which God and his word were to be excluded. No part of life and no relationship into which he was not invited to be present. He is present everywhere in every event and in every relationship. Therefore, God Moses writes these things down from God to talk about the defilement that would happen from within. So he goes through those different things, which I've listed there in your notes. They start from natural things that can also go unnatural. They touch on holy activities and holy wars will require the self-control of abstinence. And temple prostitution and or other licentious Canaanite practices and behaviors are way out of bounds. If you can't invite God into this event or into this relationship, stop. That's the point of this chapter. There is no event and no relationship you should not be able to invite him into. And if you're doing something where you say, I hope he doesn't see... You shouldn't be doing it. 
You shouldn't be in that relationship and you shouldn't be in that event. Does that make sense? That's why, this, that's why this chapter is in here. He wants to be a part of your whole entire life. Everything you do. Not a compartment. So chapter 15, we finish basically with the defilement. Chapter 16 then is, okay, what happens to all that defilement, assuming some doesn't get taken care of during the year? It's possible that all the defilement was handled during the year in these little other sacrifices, right? That's possible. But that's not altogether probable. What's more probable is there were things that were never addressed or dealt with. And they got, in a sense, charged up on the Israelites' sin credit card. And so God came once a year to collect the debt. And chapter 16 is the picture, is the story of what that looked like. So the Day of Atonement was an annual day of fasting and solemnity, not a day of celebration. Why? Because it had to do with the atonement for sin. God came to collect the payment for all the sins he'd passed over, the Passover he had passed over the previous year. God came to collect that debt. It required several sacrifices. The two most notable ones were it required two goats. One goat was for atonement, meaning the price is paid through the blood, the death and blood of this goat. And then goat number two, the escape goat, which we call the scapegoat today, the escape goat is where they put, uh, Aaron would put his hands on the forehead of the goat, confess the sins of Israel over this goat, and they would send it off into the wilderness. Legend says that they even drove it off a cliff because the last thing you wanted to see was that goat wandering back into the camp. <laughs> what was it bringing with you, or with it? Your sins. <laughs> so they made sure whoever took it out there, it doesn't say that in the Bible, but whoever took it out there, more than likely, made sure it met its untimely demise some way, somehow, so that it could not come back in. So one, the price was paid. The blood was uh, applied to the appropriate places in the tabernacle. That removed the penalty of sin. The other, the sins were removed. And it did seem to atone for all sins that had, up to that point, not been dealt with. Kind of interesting, isn't it? In that sense, Jesus was our atonement goat. The price was paid. He was also the escape goat. The Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. And he took those sins away. And that's why he can forget them or bury them into the sea. Because as the Day of Atonement illustrates, 
first, the price has to be paid. Once the price is paid, what does God do with the sins? He sends them away. He sent them away from the people. He said, I don't want you to, these are gone from you. They're not coming back. Is that amazing to you? We all have sins of commission in our past. We all have sins of omission, things we should have done that we didn't do. Where are all those sins laid on the shoulders of the Lord Jesus on the cross? Where did he take them? Into the grave. When he rose, he came up without them. They are gone, buried forever, never to be brought back to God's remembrance or to ours. What an amazing picture we have back here in Leviticus chapter 16. Gosh, by the way, oh, so many fun things about this chapter too. Who, who took care of all this? In other words, who was God's instrument for doing all these things? The what priest? The high priest. How many helpers did the high priest have? Zero. This, the high priest did this by himself. Remember, he went back into the Holy of Holies by himself. What did he take back there? The blood. This is the book of Hebrews, which we will do. When you get to look back and see what God was picturing back here, and then you see how the Lord Jesus absolutely fulfilled it, and then some. <laughs> it is amazing. Our high priest took his own blood. We have a better priest. We have better blood, his. A better tabernacle, because it's the one in heaven. A better sacrifice, because these sacrifices were not voluntary. His was. A better order. He's from the order of Melchizedek, not from the ironic, flawed priesthood. So many betters. Our high priest has taken care of our sins. He has seen to it himself. He didn't need any helpers. He didn't take any helpers. He didn't use any helpers. He said, I'm going to see the, to this one personally, start to finish. He is amazing in what he has done. Uncleanness summary. Uncleanness came from without and from within. What I took in or what I got too close to made a huge difference in my ability to worship. What was God trying to teach them? That I was to walk in a manner worthy of my calling. I was to avoid personal defilement. Why? Because I became unfit to approach God in worship and had to stay outside the camp. Because if I was defiled, there's a corporate defilement. A toxic person would defile the whole camp. And I needed to be accountable to a priest and needed cleansing. Cleansing. 
to walk in a manner worthy of my calling. I was, of course, supposed to care about myself. Who else am I supposed to care about? My brothers and sisters and God. I'm always to be thinking about others if I were a devout Israelite who was to live in light of, I lived in a community. I lived with people. I lived in the midst of God. And I didn't want to bring anything on my brothers or sisters or onto God because of me. I was to walk in a manner worthy of my calling. Could I cleanse myself? Who cleansed me? On the Day of Atonement, a day of solemnity, was I to do any work on that day? Because our works have no place in God's atonement. What? <laughs> Leviticus 16. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. We're only three books into the Bible, and he's already set out the whole New Testament. He's just waiting for the fulfillment of the day when his son would come. Amazing. And I run into people, and so do you, who say, ah, you know, I know God forgives certain things, but i got to take care of certain other ones. Take them, take them back here to Leviticus 11 through 16, and they're going to think you're crazy. Leviticus, what? I've, <laughs> That's like don't eat stuff, right? Yeah, but oh my gosh, there's so much in here. So many pictures and foreshadows of what our Lord Jesus would do to us. But I could not cleanse myself. A priest had to cleanse me. And frankly, the priest isn't even cleansing me. The priest is declaring, I've been cleansed by God. Now, our high priest not only declared that, but he's the one who did it. So not only does he cleanse me, but then he declares, there it is again, he declares me holy. You are holy. And you are becoming holy. But you have already been declared holy. I, I know I've said that for the past two or three weeks, but this has to sink in. You are already holy. Because that is God's plan and so powerful was the work of the Lord Jesus that he can declare you right now holy. And yet you are becoming holy. You are becoming more what you have already been declared to be. When you meet him, and he's not going to ask you or me, why should I let you into my heaven? He already knows you. But when he says, you know, Hey, Bill, what did, you, what did you add to this salvation that I purchased for you? <laughs> Nothing, Lord. Nothing. Not one cent could I have paid had I wanted to. Not one cent was required of me. Not one cent is even left undone from what you have done. It is all done, paid in full. You said so. That's all I have. And that's all I need. There's nothing left. You have been declared holy. Well, a, a, an inferior holy? No. <laughs> holy enough that the Son of God says, Welcome, brother. Or welcome, sister. 
you've been adopted into the family. It's already happened. But every day you're in process of becoming what he's already said you are. What, a, what an amazing God we have. Uncleanness summary. Be holy as I am holy. That's for you and that's for me. I am no longer to live as I want to live. Rather, because of my redemption, the same as theirs out of Egypt, I'm to honor him and live the way he wants me to live. My life is no longer my own. That's why Paul calls himself a bond slave of Jesus Christ. He recognizes he's been purchased and his life is no longer his own. As a good American evangelical, what do I want? I want to live in compartments. I have my personal compartment. I have maybe my work compartment. And I have maybe my Christian compartment. And none of you are, you're not going, what, Bill? He wants us to be holy and have no compartments. No compartments. I don't get to live as I want anymore because of the wonderful redemption I've received. Be holy as I am holy. How am I to avoid defilement? The truth is what I take in or what I get too close to makes a difference to my ability to worship. Really? I'm to walk in a manner worthy of my calling. Personal defilement, while it doesn't impact my relationship with God, it does impact my fellowship with Him and my worship. Anyone know what Psalm 66 verse 18 says? Let me start you off. If I had cherished sin in my heart, God would not listen to me. He hears me, because he always hears me, but he's not listening. Why? I'm cherishing sin in my heart. My loyalty to sin is greater than my loyalty to him. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. Very strange couple little verses. Do you recall what Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says? Oh, you thought because this is Old Testament, we weren't, you didn't have to know the New Testament? Okay. Matthew 5, 23 and 24 says, If you're about to give your offering, where are you? You are in a worship service. And you're about to give your offering, and there remember that you have aught with your brother. What are you to do? Leave your offering, go be reconciled to your brother, and then come present your offering. Wait a minute. That's the New Testament. Can I remind you? What principle is still in play here? Defilement. God says, you want to come worship me? Are you cherishing sin in your heart? I hear you, but I'm not going to listen to you. Do you have aught against your brother? 
such that you've even, maybe you've even tried to reconcile. You've tried to do something and they've said no, that's different. But you just say, oh yeah, I'm angry. That person, they, I've seen this happen. I guarantee you. Of course, not at this church, at another church. That person's sitting in my seat. Oh. How's, how's my heart? <laughs> I'm ready to worship, Lord. I have seen people ask people to move out of their seat. I have. You say, what? We're, if you think this, oh my gosh, that is so beneath me. Watch out. <laughs> Personal defilement. It doesn't impact my relationship with God, but it absolutely impacts my fellowship with God. Corporate defilement. A toxic person still defiles. Do you know what the, what's the example of that? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Remember the church in Corinth? There's that scoundrel who's doing unspeakable things with his mother-in-law. And what does Paul say? Get him out of the church. <laughs> Why? Because it's defiling the whole church. Now you got to get him, he's got to repent and then welcome him back. But don't play around with sin. If Leviticus 11 through 15 teaches us anything, it's that God does not wink or look the other way at sin. And just because of the finished work of Christ, we think, woo-hoo-hoo, God looks at sin differently. Cody was even talking about this today. The wages of sin is still death for the Christian. Still death. Sin never gets less sinful. Sin never gets better. It's always bad. And it always stills, steals, kills, or maims, or destroys. That's what it always does. My favorite preacher, Charles Spurgeon. And no one knows what this is, but it's a favorite saying of mine that I stole from him. Satan never hawks his wares without a sugar coating or a gilded edge. Selah. And the accountability of community is still important. That's why we emphasize home groups so much. You need to be in accountable relationships with other Christians. Why? Because God says through Paul, bad company corrupts good morals. Right? You've seen this. If I'm not in a Christ follower organization, let's say, what is it perpetually doing to me? Corrupting me. For good? For evil. For evil. Why do I need a home group of Christ followers to share my struggles with and to have people pray for me and I pray for them? I can't walk this life alone. People who, Christians who think they can be lone rangers in the Christian life, I believe, are sadly mistaken. We cannot do it. You say, well, I don't want to tell everybody everything. You know what? That's up to you. Jesus had three. Jesus had 12. 
And Jesus had 120. And he shared, it seems, different things with those three groups. So I'm not telling you, just walk around on Sunday and... Please don't do that. But who knows your life so that they can pray? And who knows you well enough to know when you're lying and can call you? It's a privilege. Cody and I have been partners, accountability partners, for 11 years now. And Ted and I used to ask each other questions on a regular basis. And then the last question we would ask is, are you lying to me? Who are you in accountability relationships with? You have to have accountability relationships. And we walk in grace with one another, not legalism. But you live in the light, and you got to put it out in the light. We all do. What I take in or what I get too close to still makes a difference in my ability to worship or serve. Parenthesis, regarding Christians and food. Jesus declared all foods clean. From heaven, God declared all foods clean to Peter after Pentecost. Food is no longer the means or the measure of my holiness. Ready? I'm about to hack off a a certain percentage of you. Just get ready. There's an elder sitting up here at the table, so you can come tell him. He'll hear the same heresy I'm about to tell you. We have the freedom to eat or drink anything we want as long as our consciences are clear. And you follow the scriptures. There are certain things that, particularly in this neck of the woods, that have been off limits for people. In Bill's opinion, that's called legalism. The gospel gives me the freedom. It doesn't give me the freedom to abuse those things. Who knows when I'm abusing them? God and me. Right? The old joke, don't drink or cuss or smoke or go with girls who do. That's what this is about. There was a day... There was a day in Israel, there was a day even in this country and in this neck of the woods where those kinds of things were means and measures of a person's holiness. I dare to to tell you, I love those brothers and sisters. I just disagree with their conclusions. I don't disagree with their heart and their desire. My mother grew up in Beaumont. That's in Texas. She always wanted to go to the dance when she was in, like, middle school or something, I guess. And her mother said, well, now remember, when you go to the dance, pretend like your left foot is nailed to the floor. Because if you move both feet, you're dancing. And good girls don't dance. You understand what I'm saying? Enough. We have the freedom in Christ to eat or drink anything we want as long as our consciences are clear and we obey the scriptures. 
You can be defiled through actions. What am I taking in today through my mouth, through my ears, through my eyes? There's lots of things that our society offers us to take in. Not all of it is edifying for us. Some of us come from family situations where it is best for us, not legalistically, but it is best for us to not drink. Because we have a family of origin that either struggled with it or we have a genetic predisposition, it would seem, to move down that road too quickly if we would start going down that road. But you also recognize that's what's right for me. And I don't have to impose that on someone else. But I understand me. Does that make sense what I'm saying? I want you to walk out of here going, Bill said don't. He said I could. He did not. What am I taking in today? Drunkenness, illegal substances, music, TV, movies, magazines, internet. Is there anyone in here who's not on the internet? <laughs> what am I taking in today? And as Cody described this morning, I can... Sometimes I find myself alone, but there's other times I can make myself alone. And I'm looking for trouble. When I make myself alone, I'm looking. And guess what I know is on the internet? There's a lot of things on the internet. You understand that I, somebody did a, oh my gosh, stop. It's like still 60%. On the internet today, 60% is about pornography and stuff like that. Can you imagine this? The World Wide Web, 60% of it is unbelievable stuff. What am I taking in today? What am I getting too close to today in my actions or in my thoughts or in my heart? Any improper relationships? How about envy, greed, anger, lust, worry? Anybody here worried about something? Sorry, I'm meddling. I worry about things, and then I'm reminded Jesus says, don't worry. What's, what's at issue? My trust in him. What am I taking in today? What am I getting too close to today? Am I bringing my secret toxicity into the worship service? If you're cherishing sin in your heart and you know it, and you come in and pretend like everything is okay, guess what you have done to the worship service? Guess what you have done to our church? You're defiling it which is why we practice church discipline. <clears throat> Kindly and graciously, I can assure you. But we're supposed to deal with toxicity. How about defilement through attitudes? Not just my action, actions. What's my heart attitude toward honoring God's holiness in public worship? My heart attitude. I don't, all I see is your ex, your, uh, your, what's on the outside, your externals. 
Have I become thoughtless about my worship? Has my worship become routine or mechanical? Am I even cavalier, haughtily careless about it from time to time? Do I leave time before the service to have my heart cleansed appropriately for worship? Do I realize why I'm there? I am not there to hear fantastic music at 11 o'clock or 9.15 or 5 o'clock or the other 11 o'clock or another can. I'm not there for that. I am there to leave my worship. I am not there to consume. I am there to leave an offering. And is my heart prepared to leave an offering? One that the Lord will accept. And I've touched on already our need for real community. As a nation of priests, we're called on to help each other in our walks with God. Who are you accountable to? Galatians 6, 1 through 3 is a great set of verses for um, fellow priests. For next week, finish the book of Leviticus. Don't put it off. Start it tomorrow morning. Friday will come, Saturday will come, Sunday will come, and you'll say, oh my goodness, I've still got 17 through 27 to read, and you're going to start into 17, and you're going to say, you know, I'm just going to wait and see what Bill says about that. You'll get so much more out of it if you'll read it ahead and then let me talk about it. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. There's so many ways he's pictured. Uh, Way, way, way back here. Uh, You wrote this book and it all holds together in and around him. Thank you for him. He is wonderful. He is matchless. He is amazing. Uh, He is so loving that he would come outside the camp and find me, and invite me, not only into the camp, but into the tabernacle, into the holy of holies, where you are. Father, it's, it's absolutely stunning and amazing, and we are in awe of you and your plan and your work. Thank you for these pictures that we see in the Old Testament. Thank you for the way you've always trained your people to walk in holiness. The indwelling spirit, your word, our brothers and sisters are who we're counting on to help us walk in holiness. I pray that you would help us, empower us by your spirit this week. We pray for it, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.